Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you and we ask that this day you would open our hearts and our eyes by your Spirit, that we would hear your word, that we'd be changed by and in your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. This is called Bishop's Prerogative. I'm moving the, uh, the lectern. Um, we are in the Easter season, the season that began last week with that proclamation, Alleluia, Christ is risen. And the response, as you said this morning, risen indeed. Alleluia. This is a cry of rejoicing. It is also a cry of defiance. Now, it's a cry of rejoicing because Jesus, in his resurrection, he triumphed over sin and death and the enemy of our souls. And through faith, his victory can be our victory. There is hope. It is also a cry of defiance because there is much in the world that tells us that there is no reason to have hope and there's no reason for joy. And in the face of that, we can feel hopeless. In the face of what feels like a hopeless world, we proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. Now this isn't denial. It's not um, sort of pretending that things are good when they're not good and, and just making so that rose-colored glasses and, and thinking that that somehow is faith. This is reminding us of something that is deeper and more true than anything else. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, it changes everything in this world. And the resurrection then becomes our lens for understanding the world around us and understanding ourselves and understanding God. This is what we begin to see in John chapter 20, which is where I'm going to be for this sermon is in John chapter 20, the gospel we heard this morning. This is the evening of the resurrection. You heard from last week, Jesus rose from the dead, the women come, they hear that he is not here, why you seek the living among the dead, he is risen. And they go back and they tell the disciples, and it says in Luke 24 that, um, that their words to them seem like nonsense. They didn't believe what the women had said. It seemed like nonsense. It really is sort of unfortunate that, that Thomas is singled out as the doubting one, doubting Thomas. Because actually all of them are doubting, right? They don't believe it. It does not make sense to them. It does not fit with what they expected. And this is why we find them in verse 19. And that evening they are hiding with fear behind locked doors. And actually, that's what makes sense, right? The person you're following has been brutally murdered. He has been crucified. And, and now you might be next. And so what do you do? You hide. But what they are doing, in one sense, actually makes full sense to them. Because they understood, they knew that all wasn't right with the world. And actually, all wasn't right with themselves either. They had seen one that they thought was a part of them, that they trusted betray Jesus. They had seen, in their own fear, how they abandoned Jesus when he was arrested. And then they had watched Jesus being killed as if he were a common criminal. The echoes of hopelessness and futility, the sting of death, that is what they knew. That is what made sense to them, and that is what was shaping how they were living. In the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, he sets right everything that was set wrong in our rebellion in Genesis chapter 3. He is the one that, that makes right the mess that we made as we rebelled against God. And it doesn't make sense to the world. In one sense, when it says it seemed like their words were nonsense to them, it's the same thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, that the, the message of the gospel, it is foolishness to those who are perishing. 
but to us who believe, it is the power of God. Because in His, rest, in his resurrection, there is a restoration of everything that was lost in our rebellion in the fall. In fact, more is gained in Jesus' resurrection from the dead than was lost in our rebellion. His grace and His love and His power is greater than our sin. It's greater than our rebellion. It's greater than death. It's greater than all the powers of hell. And this is what we begin to see in this story in John chapter 20. Jesus appears to the disciples. They're huddled behind locked doors. They're hiding. And, um, and He says to them, Peace be with you. Now we look in Luke 24, at Luke's account. He actually gives us a little detail that the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. And of course, that's what would make sense. They saw him killed. So he comes and he says, peace be with you. So you could look at this as Jesus in one sense is saying, calm down, don't freak out. Uh, Peace be with you. Uh, There is this sense of of, um, trying to calm down their fear, their anxiety. But there's actually something deeper in this. What Jesus is doing is leading him into the very thing that he said on the night that he was handed over. In John chapter 14 and verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives, because the world gives and takes away. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not be afraid. So they're huddling behind locked doors for fear, and he comes and says, Peace be with you. That's not a rebuke. It is an invitation. He is inviting them into, reminding him of his work of peace that he brings to us. In fact, the words, peace be with you, are really an echo of with his last words on the cross, it is finished. Because of what he has accomplished, we can now be at peace with God. At peace in Scripture, it is associated with salvation. And, and that makes sense. It's the good news of peace. Uh, The good news of peace, the good news of what Jesus has done for us in rescuing us. The gospel is not um, try really, really hard to be good. And if you're good enough, maybe God will accept you. What is the good news in that? I mean, there is no good news in try harder. Uh, The good news is this proclamation of peace of what has been done for us to rescue us by Jesus and his death on the cross and his resurrection. And so peace in the Old Testament, it's associated with salvation, it's associated with the blessings of God, and the companion of peace in Scripture is always joy. And so you see that the disciples become overjoyed in verse 20. They're overjoyed, and it makes sense, because you cannot have joy if you're not at peace. Now, we can distract ourselves now, we can do things to make ourselves giddy, but we, if we don't actually have that deep sense of peace, we cannot have joy. And God's peace, His salvation, it always brings His presence, it always brings His grace, it always brings His life, and it always brings His joy. Now this story, I think, gets actually even more interesting in the next two verses, 21 and 22. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus says, Peace be with you. They're overjoyed, so they're not anxious. They have this sense of peace. And he then says to them again, Peace be with you. Does that strike anybody else as a little odd? He says peace. They're calmed down. They're overjoyed in Jesus being present. And he says peace again. 
But the reason that he tells them peace again is because what he's saying right afterwards. Peace be with you as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You actually need to have the peace of God for that because the Father sent Jesus and what just happened to him? Right? If I am sending you in the same way the Father has sent me and you've seen what's happened to me in these days, you need the peace of God for this. You need the peace of God to be able to step in and walk in what the Father is doing. In the same way the Father sent me, I am sending you. And so we see it in Acts chapter 5, which we read today. We read a small portion. Where it says that the apostles there before the Sanhedrin, and they are telling them, do not speak anymore about Jesus. In verse 40, which we did not go that far in the reading, it says they actually flogged, beaten. It, it is a brutal, cruel punishment. And then told not to speak about Jesus again and sent out. What is amazing, if you read that story, is that it says that the disciples actually rejoiced. They were counted worthy of suffering for Jesus. There is His peace brings His joy, and that is a joy that the world cannot take away. Over 40 times, Jesus is referred to as the one who is sent by the Father. In fact, you could say that is a defining phrase for who Jesus is. And now that same phrase is actually meant to define the disciples. In other words, mission is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple. Mission is at the heart of discipleship. You cannot grow deeper and deeper in, in discipleship and faith of the Lord if there is not something of this being His presence in the world that you are also engaging in. It, it, mission is at the heart of what it means to be a disciple. It is at the heart of discipleship. And it is a part of the core identity of the church. We are here to carry on the work of Jesus. We don't have to um, start our own work. We're not about creating our own things, doing what we want to do. We are here to be uh, carrying out the work of Jesus. We are a sent people. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. His pattern is our pattern. This is in the Gospel of John. It's John's version of the Great Commission. Therefore, wherever you go, make disciples. That's not the command. The command, the command is make disciples. It's not go. It's wherever you go, make disciples, baptizing them. And then in the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is why the early church, they looked at verse 23, and they, they looked at this verse and said, this refers to baptism. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Because they understood this as the Great Commission. And, and what happens in baptism? You're cleansed of your sins and you're united with Jesus. They understood this verse in that way. We are a sent people. We are sent as the same as the Father sent Jesus. He is sending us. Which means that we are sent for the same purpose. So you have... Uh, Jesus in Luke 19 saying that I was sent to seek and save the lost. That is then how we are sent. We are sent to seek and to save the lost. We are sent to be about the restoration of people to the Lord Jesus Christ. What you have in Luke chapter 4 uh, where he is quoting from Isaiah. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor to proclaim freedom for prisoners, to reclaim the recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of God's favor. What is your purpose? 
But we are to be those who proclaim the good news to those who are poor. We are to be those who set free those who are held in oppression and the bondage of sin. We are to be those who see eyes open to see the truth of God. We are to be those who actually proclaim the Lord's favor, His delight and His goodness and His love that is accessible to us through the cross of Jesus. We have in John chapter 10, verse 10, Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That is His purpose. Uh, that, that we are to be those who are filled with the life of God, filled with the joy of His presence. And, and that is why we are sent to others, that others might actually know and experience this life to the full. All the things that we rejoice in that God has done for us, the ways that He that actually is to shape what we are doing, what our purpose is in bringing that same life and blessing to others. Now, I don't know about you, but um, I get sidetracked pretty easily into my own purposes. Um, I, I begin to live a smaller story. I begin to think about the things that I would like to see happen, the things that I would do, and, and those purposes can actually overshadow what God's purpose is. Now sometimes um, that happens because the gravitational pull of the world is to pull us into a smaller story, is to pull us into um, looking at the things that we think bring us life and success and happiness. Sometimes that happens purely because it is, um, it is a rebellion and selfishness. Often it happens because we look at the purpose of what he is calling us into, and it seems so big, and I seem so insignificant. How can I do that? Or we begin to look at it and say, if I step into this, then there are things that I'm going to have to give up and lose, and, and I have to hand away something of who I am and the things that I have. So all these things keep us from being a sent people. If we do not understand that being a sent people has so much more, has so much more in it than just being sent with the same purpose. There is a larger story. We're not the main character, God is, but we're not unimportant. We're not extras. We're not those who have no role. We're not those who are just merely observers and, and extraneous to the story. This is why we have Jesus sending the disciples and then sending us and breathing on them. This is why Jesus breathing on them with the Holy Spirit is so important and separate, essential. What we see in John chapter 20 and verse 22 when he breathes on them and says, Receive the Holy Spirit. This is the same thing we see in Genesis 2 when the Lord God took the dust of the earth and breathed and created us, that we were then made in the image of God, which means that we were made to be His presence and His glory in creation. What we see happening in verse 22 is, is a work of creation that is similar to what we see in Genesis chapter 2, where the image of God is given. It is a work of creation. It is a work of restoration of what was lost in our rebellion in the fall. When we rebelled against God, it's not that the image of God is taken away. We still bear the image of God. But the image of God has been corrupted by sin. 
It's been, it's been tarnished by sin. When Jesus breathes and says, Receive the Holy Spirit, there is a restoration of this image of God, of the glory that God intended in the beginning. This is the Holy Spirit making us new creations. This is why Paul can write in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18, And we with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory. See, we can be sent as Jesus was sent because the, 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 the Father, Jesus, has breathed into us the Holy Spirit and brought us to faith. He's restored in us the image of God. We can be sent as Jesus was sent because if we have been rescued, the Word of God tells us that we are actually being transformed into the image of God with an ever-increasing glory. It's not dependent on us trying to stir up something noble. This is the work that God has done in rescuing us, that we are those who are being transformed if, uh, with an ever-increasing glory. We are sent as Jesus was sent. Jesus was one with the Father. He was the very presence of God. When you read the Gospel, what you find is that, that people were encountered not just with the words of God or about God, they were actually encountering God Himself, the very presence of God. And this is what created so much consternation. If we are sent as Jesus was sent, then that means that the world around us is not confronted with a human institution called the church. The world around us should be confronted with Jesus. We are His body. We are His presence and we are His glory in this world. Again, the night that He was arrested, Jesus prays in John 17, 20-23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in Me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one, Father, just as You are in Me and I am in You. May they be in us so that the world may believe that You have sent Me. I have given them the glory that you gave me. Have you heard that? Jesus is saying, I have, he's talking about us, I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity, that the world will know that you have sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Being sent as Jesus was sent, it speaks to being united with Christ that we are joined together with Him, that we are His body, that we are His presence in this world. What that means, and this is where we have to get a different understanding, that being sent as He was sent is not first and foremost about what we do. It's about who we are. Who we are as God's presence and His glory in this world. It's not primarily about the things that we do. It's about who God has made us to be and His grace and His power and His presence in us and through us. It's that place of recognizing that if we have been rescued by Jesus, we are His presence. We are His image. We are His glory in this world. Which means that if you have been rescued by Jesus, you bring the kingdom of God wherever you go. The more that we wake up to this truth, the more that we understand this truth, the more that we allow the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us, that our lives actually manifest the kingdom of God as we walk in this world. Not in a way that, um, that is 
sort of pious and preachy, but the way that just flows out of us, what fits naturally in how God has made us. Maybe another way of, of saying this is that we've got to understand that we are sent by Jesus, just as the Father has sent Him, that we are sent not in spite of who we are. How often do we approach our life that way? That, that, that I think we've got this, this strange picture that God woke up and He said, look at all the stuff I have to do today. There's so many. Who can I find to do this? Who, who? Well, there's Ben, and I guess I have to make do with him. As if the almighty, sovereign Lord of the universe didn't plan well enough ahead. He doesn't do His work in spite of us. He does His kingdom work through us. There is a shift that we need to understand because we begin to think that God's work is sort of in spite of us instead of recognizing the work of His grace and glory in shaping us, the ways that He has gifted us, who He's made us to be, and where He's placed us is specifically to be His kingdom presence. This is what Paul is writing about in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10, where he says, we are God's workmanship. It's a work of art, a masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which He prepared in advance for us to do. And there is something specific that God has created for you to do. And it relates to how He has made you as His masterpiece, as His work of art. See, we miss the joy of being sent as Jesus was sent when we don't step into doing what He has prepared for us to do. And when it's prepared for us to do, that doesn't mean that I look at Ben and I think, this is the way that Ben brings the kingdom. I'm going to try to be like him. Because if I'm trying to be like him, I'm trying to do the works that God has prepared for him to do. He has prepared something for me to do. And it fits who I am. Which is why you see in the Reformation, Luther recovered this great truth that for the Christian, there is no such thing as a secular job. Everything you do is kingdom work. And we are to approach everything we do as those who do kingdom work. And I, so Father has sent me, I am sending you. Jesus was in complete dependence upon the Father. We see this in places like John 5 where Jesus says that the Son does nothing on His own. Only what the Father tells Him to do. He only does what He sees the Father doing. Being sent as Jesus was sent means that we are to live a life of complete dependence on God. And I am here to tell you that you can't do that. It is beyond our ability to live in this complete dependence on God. We need God the Holy Spirit to empower us for that. It is not an act of our will to do this. It is the Spirit of God empowering us to walk in this place of, of being dependent upon the Father. It is this being empowered by the Holy Spirit to be sent as Jesus was sent. This is actually what Pentecost is about. It is this empowering by the Holy Spirit to be sent as Jesus was sent. What happens on the day of Pentecost is different than what happens in John 20. When, when Jesus breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit, this is about them coming to faith. This is about them being recreated in the image of God. This is what Paul writes about in Romans 8, 9, that you cannot believe in Jesus if you don't have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that awakens us and brings us to faith. 
But what you see happening when Jesus breathes on the disciples in John 20, it is not what you see happening on Pentecost. And you can, you can see it because even a week later, where do you find them? Hiding behind locked doors again. Some of them decide they're going to go back to fishing and not fishing men. Fish! I mean, you don't see this empowering of the Holy Spirit that propels them forth in mission until the Holy Spirit empowers them on the day of Pentecost. In fact, you could say that until Pentecost, the disciples really don't look like a sent people, do they? It is only after the Holy Spirit comes and fills and empowers them do we see them beginning to live and what it means to be a sent people. All too often, we try to be sent as Jesus was sent without the Holy Spirit's empowerment, which means that then we rely on our programs, we rely on our abilities, we, we put forth our five-year plans, and those are the things that we begin to depend on, which means that our, our vision gets smaller and we begin to do the things that just seem safe and the things that we think we can accomplish. Instead of recognizing the Spirit of God empowers us to do so much more than we can actually even imagine. To be sent as Jesus was sent. All these pieces fit together. You take away any one of them and, and the whole falls apart. If we try to be sent as Jesus was sent without the empowering of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to work. If we have our own purposes, it's not going to work. They all fit together. And that is where there is such deep encouragement. We are sent in and with the peace of Jesus. Not with guilt, not with anxiety, not with a sense of duty, not with obligation, but we are sent in His peace and with His peace. We are sent for the same purposes. We don't have to create new purposes. If you want a vision statement, you find it in the New Testament. Uh, we don't have to create something new. We carry forth what He has done. And we're not left alone uh, to be a kingdom presence in this world. We are united with Jesus. We are put in His body. We are united to one another. And, and we are those who are then being changed by God the Holy Spirit from one degree of glory into another. This is what He does for us. This is His work in us and through us, and it's not in spite of us. It's through us. And we are empowered by God the Holy Spirit to be a kingdom presence. Uh, Paul writes in Ephesians 1, uh, verses 19 and 20, that the power of God that is given to us is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. And that He empowers us to be His kingdom presence. So in the Gospel reading today, maybe the words that we need to hear the most are the same words that Jesus spoke to Thomas in verse 27. Stop doubting and believe. It's awkward to translate it in this way, but it's much more accurate to say that what this is really saying, that the language is, is saying something more like, stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. In other words, there's a sense of a journey. There's, there's the sense of movement in this. That there's a recognition that, that we are always heading in one direction or the other. There is no place where we just stay and we don't move. We're always heading in one direction or the other. So Jesus is saying, become about believing. Head in this direction. 
as we look at what it is to be sent as the Father sent Jesus, that what the words that we need to hear are stop becoming unbelieving and get on with believing. Believe what he has done for you. Begin to step into that. Believe in how he has remade us for his glory and in his glory and as his glory. That he has saved us, he has shaped us to be his presence in this world. This is what we do in confirmation. It is asking the Holy Spirit to empower those who we are being confirmed to, to live into what God has done. We actually talk about confirmation as lay ordination. It's the empowering of the Spirit to be God's presence in this world. So as we come to the time of confirmation, hear this for yourself. Hear what the Lord is saying and doing for you. Stop becoming unbelieving and, and get on with becoming believing. Recognize what He has done for you, who He has made you to be. Recognize and walk in His goodness that there is a joy that we have in being sent as He was sent. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your grace and Your kindness and Your goodness that when we had wandered from you in our rebellion, you sent Jesus to rescue us. Father, that, that it doesn't depend on us being good enough, it depends on you. It depends on Jesus and what he has done for us. Father, would you help us to know and walk in the peace that comes from this truth? And Father, in that peace, would you shape us that we would know that we are a sent people, that as the Father sent you, you send us. In the same purpose, united with you, in the same empowering of the Spirit, and in the life and the joy that you alone bring. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.